Welcome to the Acts 29 U.S. South Central Podcast. I'm Bob Thune, and I'm glad, as always, to be your host for this episode. Acts 29 is a global family of church-planting churches. The U.S. South Central Network of Acts 29 focuses on church-planting in the states of Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. And on this podcast, we take the best content we have on church planting and church leadership, and we make it available to you to equip and encourage you in gospel ministry. On today's episode of the podcast, you'll hear from Brian Key. Brian is one of the pastors at Redeemer Fellowship in Kansas City, and he taught at our recent network gathering in Oklahoma City on the scriptural metaphor of the temple and how this helps us understand God's design for the church. So here now is Brian Key on the church as the temple. Father, indeed worthy are you to receive blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and power and might forever. God, we stand in need of your grace, your presence, and your power this morning to receive from your word, to see what you long for us to see as your church. And so, living God, we ask that you would do that work. And as I stand to do my work today, I ask that the spirit of the living God, you would fall fresh on me, that you would break me and mold me and fill me and use me today. God, give us a demonstration of your spirit and your power today. And as I preach your word, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you. I am a black preacher, so um, talk back. Amen. Hey, it's, it's, it's good to be here with you. For those I hadn't, I hadn't had the chance to meet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you as we reflect on the metaphors of the church. And we have reflected on ourselves as a bride of Christ and as a household of God in the last day. And today, my work before you is to reflect and consider with you the metaphor of the church as the temple of the living God. And Josh said it yesterday, we need these metaphors, these signposts to remember God's divine why for why he established us at the, at the church. I'm reminded often of the scene in, uh, I think, the silver chair where uh, Aslan appears to Joe Pole and says, hey, I'm sending you on a mission. Here's the signs of that mission. And he, he makes her recite the, the signs over and over and over again until she gets them right. And he leaves her with these critical words, remember, remember, remember the signs. When you get out there in the difficulty, if you don't remember the signs, you will lose your way. That's why these metaphors matter to us, family. And I joked with the guys yesterday that they left me with a meaty task. Greg Beal wrote a 400-page tome on the temple of God, and they gave me a few minutes. I feel slighted. <laughs> but um, man, I, I, I want to do my work today just to, to give you a brief overview of the temple of God throughout the scriptures. I can't show it all to you and unpack all of it to you today, but I want to do that work to show us that and then just talk at the end about three things, three implications, three uh, things that it means for us to live as the temple of God. The, the Bible actually begins, by the way, with a garden temple and it ends in a garden temple. It begins in the garden temple and it ends in a, in a garden temple. It begins with the command to fill the earth with the glory of God. And it ends in the fulfillment of the work of God by God's power to actually fill all of creation with his glory. So that's a bookend of the Bible. And if you were to instill the story of the Bible into one sentence, it would be God is building a dwelling place and is inviting us to dwell with him. 
God's building a dwelling place, and he's inviting us to dwell with him. In the beginning, in the middle of the majesty of his created universe, God uh, creates the Garden of Eden, sits down, man and woman, bearing his image to the world, and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Their work was to cultivate, and to guard, and to keep the Garden of God, but not just to guard that one place, but to expand the boundaries of that garden temple into the rest of the world, Eden was a place of God's special revelatory presence in his creation. The river of life, by the way, that flows out of the garden into the world around them represents God's life-giving presence in the center of his sanctuary, the center of his people. As image bearers there to expand the boundaries of that garden by multiplying image bearers and cultivating the world around them, our work as human beings was to fill the world with icons, these pointers to the presence of the living God. And just as like the icons on the screen of your computer open up to a greater reality, our work as image bearers is to bear witness to a greater reality that, that we're made from. The great point to this greater reality, we were made to represent God and his world and invite the world to know the greater reality that we exist for. But Adam and Eve decided that they didn't want to just represent God, they decided they wanted to be God. Instead of advancing the glory of God in the world, they decided to live for their own glory. And so God drives them east of Eden, and all human life since then has been lived east of Eden with a longing to return to the presence of God family. And the question we're left with, as Dr. Beale puts it, is who will open the way back into the tabernacle presence? of the living God. Later on in the, in the Old Testament narrative, God gives his people the temple and, and, the, and the tabernacle, these local representations of the manifestation of the presence of God, but neither one of them could actually contain God. Neither one of them could contain God. It's, it's God's intention from the beginning of creation that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like waters cover the sea. No edifice can hold his presence. That's why Solomon prays in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18, he says, But will God dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven, even the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that we built? He knows the temple is an inadequate dwelling place for God, and the purpose of it is not just to be a place, but to welcome the nations. He says in verse 33 of that same chapter, the work of the temples in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know this house that I've built is called by your name. We bear witness to the presence of God in the middle of the darkness of the world around us, but God's people got caught up in the proximate reality of the temple around us. You see that uh, Jeremiah tells him in Jeremiah 7, hey, don't trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And the word to us today, brothers and sisters, is don't put your trust in the church of the Lord, the church of the Lord, the church of the Lord. It is merely a place where his presence dwells and a signpost to a greater glory. And if we get caught looking at the thing only, we miss the reality that the metaphor points to. The goal of the temple was to declare God's plan to dwell among his people. Their work as the people of God was to move out into the world and draw people into the life-giving presence of the living God. But Israel failed in their purpose, didn't they? Yeah. 
fulfilled in the purpose of God promises that he would establish his presence among the nations. He would not just draw Israel, but he would draw nations and outsiders and people who could not get into his presence. Unholy people could be welcomed into his presence. You see a promise like that in Isaiah 56, verses 7 and 8. He says of the eunuchs and the foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Somebody else say amen to that. You are one of those, by the way. These I will bring into my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. God will gather up peoples to dwell in his presence, to dwell with him. Despite Adam's sin, despite Israel's failure, God says, I will complete my mission. I will complete my mission. And in the fullness of time, and in the fullness of time, God comes to dwell among us through the person of Jesus. John tells us in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God's presence is perfectly revealed. God's presence is perfectly located. God's presence is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. It becomes clear throughout the Gospels. The physical temple is no longer the place to meet God. It's no longer the place where the nations will be drawn. That place was merely a placeholder for the person. Jesus judges the temple's failure to bear witness in John chapter 2 to the nations. He flips tables and he says, man, this is not the way things were meant to be. We're supposed to welcome outcasts and draw people into the presence of God, but you're giving people a stiff arm. How are we giving stiff arms to people around us instead of welcoming them into the presence of God? The Jews get upset with Jesus as he flips their tables and overturns their systems. And they say, hey, dude, who do you think you are? What signs, John chapter 2, verse 18, do you give us that to, to, to show why you're doing these things? And Jesus answers, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. They're like, yo, bro, um, it took us 46 years to build this thing. I don't know who the heck you think you are. But John says, hey, 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 he's speaking about the temple of his body. He's speaking about the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead, the disciples realized and remembered, oh, that's what he's talking about. He's the dwelling place of God. He draws us into the presence of God. Family, Jesus puts these temple leaders on notice that the glorious presence of God that lit up the temple in Exodus 40 is with them now in his person. With them now in his person. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in him the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. The fullness of God dwelling among us, walking us, drawing us into the presence of God. All the, all the other sanctuaries of the patriarchs, the tabernacle, the temple, all of them were signposts pointing to the one who would come as a special revelatory presence of God in the world. God is tabernacling among his people. Jesus, family, listen to me. Jesus is the bursting forth of the glorious presence of the revelatory beauty of God from the Holy of Holies in heaven. Yeah. God bursts forth in heaven and makes himself 
known to us in Jesus and through his death and his resurrection. He pays the penalty for our sins. He enables us to enter into the presence of God without fear. Jesus replaces that old temple made with hands and in his resurrection body, he establishes the temple not made with hands. At his death, the temple curtain is torn, signifying that the presence of God is open to the people of God who receive him through faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The defilement of the people of God is washed away by his blood that's shed, and the brought near gift of God now brings us near into the presence of God. His sacrifice invites us to draw near, and his resurrection body, by the way, serves as the beginning of the end time temple. Serves the beginning of the end time temple. The end time dwelling of God with his people and as his body family. As his body. We are now the location throughout the world of God's special revelatory presence. He has established us now in his body as his temple. So Paul highlights in Ephesians chapter 2. We had it read yesterday but I'll read it again because I love Ephesians 2. God, Paul tells us that through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. He says, in him you also. In him, by your union with him, in your identification with him, in you, in him also, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Then God has established his dwelling place among us. So what he planned to do from the beginning of creation is the work he's going to finish at the end of time. And as his temple, we represent his presence in the world. And our mission, just like Adam and Eve at the beginning, is to expand the temple by bearing witness to God and being light to the world. We are living stones built upon the foundation of the living stone. And we are growing and we are expanding and we are filling the earth with the manifold wisdom, with the beauty and glory of God who inhabits us as his dwelling place. Our status is that of temple. We are bride. We are a household. We are temple of the living God. And our status as a temple of God means three things for us today, and I will be out of your way. Three things for us. The first thing I think it means for us is it's a call to holiness. It's called a holiness. The consuming fire of the holy God cannot dwell with unholiness. He will not share his glory with another, he says. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, he says. He will not share his glory with another. He will not share his people, his bride, his temple with another family. God has put us on display to bear witness to his presence in the middle of a hostile world. And in the hostility of the world around us, our temptation is to live as an unmarked building. Our temptation is to live as an unmarked building. I don't want to look distinct. So instead of bearing the name holy to the Lord, uh, throughout the New Testament, we're, we're pressed from the inside by our own sin and our own idolatry and pressed from the outside by the worldliness and by our enemy. And our temptation is to shrink back, to conform, to fall away, to get complacent in the world around us. We try to blend in and maintain our status for the sake of hoping maybe to possibly speak truth later. 
What we don't understand is that our failure to bear clear witness right here and right now, it confuses our purpose and our, and our identity to our people, and it confuses our purpose and our identity to the world around us, family. We see that in our political engagements, don't we? So in our political engagements, we're just like the world around us. We divide on one side or the other, trying to, trying to gain influence from the inside of one side or another. But influence from the inside always means we lack distinct witness and influence in the world that God called us to. Family, our allegiance is to another king. Our allegiance is to his kingdom and his glory, and our life is to be marked by the full agenda, the transcendent ethic, and the unwavering hope of the kingdom of God. Conformity and compromise mute our witness and pledge of allegiance to the idols of our comfort and conformity and power. Well, what's the way forward? What's the way forward? It's to regain our understanding as the distinct witness, the holy witness of God in an unholy world. It's why I think the church desperately needs John's apocalypse as much as we ever have. We need John's revelation as much as we ever have because revelation, if I was to sum it all up, revelation is a disclosure from the mind and mouth of God to encourage the people of God in light of the sovereign and victorious and eternal reign of the Son of God. We're reminded of, of what God is doing in Revelation and what that means for us to live as his holy people. And we see in the vision of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1 that the risen Christ is in the midst of his church. He's purifying her with his presence and comforting her through his power as we go about our labors to witness to him in the world. Family, anywhere you see the church backing down under threat of persecution or conforming to the ways of this world is forgotten. It's because we've forgotten who dwells among us. And it's because we've forgotten our holy calling as the dwelling place of the living God family. But where you see holy and faithful and bold, hope-filled people of God, it's because they have an ever-increasing understanding that we are the dwelling place of God. And that God is bearing witness to us and holding us up by the word of his power. We need not conform and worry about falling on the wrong side of history because the one who is the first and the last sovereign over history is with us, family. He is with us, family. We receive our identity and our vocation from God as the dwelling place of God. Paul tells us that our lives should look distinct from this world. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and following. Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? But we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What good news today. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, household language. You shall be my sons and daughters to me. So Paul concludes in verse 1 of chapter 7. Since then we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Family, the call of God is to purify ourselves, to purify ourselves, to go out from the midst of this world. And the only way we'll pursue holiness in our vocation as the temple of God is if we call our people back and call ourselves back constantly to the promises of God, to the holiness of God. Compromise and conformity happens when we lose sight of that reality family. 
fear being on the wrong side of history because we've forgotten that the promised son of man who has authority over all the kingdoms of this world, the one who has defeated our worst enemy in death, he stands in our midst, he defends our cause, he energizes our work, and even when we're battered for that cause, we look to his battered body and we find hope family. I don't need to worry about being on the wrong side of history because the first and the last is on our side. He has established us. He is fulfilling his mission. So my work is to live as a distinct dwelling place of the living God. And by the way, the end of the book promises he's going to finish the work. He's going to fill the earth with his presence. So in our preaching, in our discipleship, in our labors, we must do everything we can to apply the word of God to ourselves and to the lives of the people around us. We need to let the word of Christ cleanse us as his bride and establish us as his temple in holiness. So we seek to bear witness to the glorious presence of God in the world. So we seek to see the entire cosmos filled with the beauty of God himself. The call of God is to be holy as he is holy and represent him well to the world. So the, the work of cultivating holiness, by the way, leads us to our second thing. The work of cultivating holiness is actually for the purpose of witness. It's actually for the purpose of witness, Dr. Beal says it this way, our task as the covenant community, the church, is to be God's temple. So filled with his glorious presence that we expand and fill earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely at the end of time. Yeah. Our work as the church family is to experience God's presence and to extend it into the world. To experience God's presence and to extend it into the world. Key, why do you say experience God's presence? Well, hey, it's only as we dwell in the presence of God, only as we behold his glory face to face, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, that we actually will be conformed into his image and bear his likeness to the world. We desperately need to be people in our witness to who are dwelling in the presence of God, transformed by him. And that transformation, that worship in his presence is the fuel for our mission, family. That's the fuel for our mission. It's the light of his presence that fuels our mission. We are like those glow-in-the-dark toys that your kids have, right? Those things are like they get pissed off at night because daddy is not lit up, right? Well, hey, sweet, it only lights up if it sits under light for a while. You can only bear light in the darkness of your room as it sits under and soaks in the light that is around it. family. We have to soak in the light of the presence of God if we're going to bear light in the world. We have to soak in the presence of God to emanate that light. It's the presence of God that empowers our witness. We shine brightly as we soak in that family, which is why, family, I think our gospel-centered preaching, by the way, is falls short of what God has intended for it to sometimes. What are you thinking? Well, hey, man, we talk about the gospel as the keys into the room of the presence of God. And we fail to tell people, like, hey, your work is actually going on. Your work is actually going. If you've only preached a gospel that's constantly waving the keys, like, hey, we've got the keys, we've got the keys, but are not entering into the room ourselves and are not inviting our people to enter into the room, no wonder the light of the presence of God does not shine forth from our face and our witness to the world, family. So my question is, pastors, are we marveling over the fact that we have keys to the room but failing to go in ourselves? Is our gospel-centered preaching only telling people about the access we have into the presence of God? Are we inviting people to come into the room, into the life-giving presence of the living God? 
wonder how much of our failure to expand the temple is more tied to the reality that we're talking about access to his presence more than dwelling in it. Family, the heart of the mission of God is birthed out of and lived out of the light of his presence. The light of his presence. If the source of our mission is only our idealism and our dreams and our vision, we're going to fall on our faces. We're going to fall flat. We're going to get tired. We're going to quit, family. Our mission arises from soaking in the presence of God, and we can only invite people into what we are experiencing. And as we experience God's presence, we're able to extend his presence through our mission in the old temple system, people had to come from far off to get close and draw near to the presence of the Lord. But in Christ Jesus, family, God is extending his presence through his church into the world, through the temple that is his church. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that not only are we the temple of the Lord, we have priestly work to do in the temple of God. And what is our spiritual sacrifice, Peter? You see it in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy our vocation family. It's to bear witness. God has set us apart as his temple and given us the priestly work of bearing witness to the world. Beale says again, just as the Old Testament priests sacrificed on behalf of the people to bring them to God, so the New Testament priests sacrificed on behalf of the nations to bring them to God. Our priestly ministry comes through the sacrifice of us bearing witness to the redemptive work of the mediating priest par excellence. As we find our life in the presence of God, we offer the life found in the presence of God to the world. As we soak in the light of his presence, we bear witness through the word and through deed of the one who's welcomed us into his presence. We embody the reality of his presence and we invite people into the presence of God through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus. He is the once and for all sacrifice. The sacrifice brought near to God so that he could bring us to God. We bear witness to that as the people who have received mercy. We have a word to preach in light to shine family. The third thing I want to actually just focus on us. What's the implications for us in our work as ministers of the gospel family? Well, God has invited us to take part in seeing the temple grow and expand as we proclaim the word of God and bear witness to his presence in the world. Now, I don't have time to unpack everything there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, we get our, our marching orders as temple tenders. We are both gardeners of God's field and builders in his temple. Gardeners in God's field and builders. This gardening metaphor reminds us of, of our dependence on God as we plant and as we water and as we beg him to bear fruit. It's a reminder that our job is to cultivate the soil that is our people so that it bears good fruit. Just like Adam and Eve were supposed to guard and then keep the, the garden temple of Eden uh, to cultivate and to extend it, our work is to guard and to keep and to cultivate and to tend and to extend God's field into the world, bearing fruit fruit of the kingdom of God all around us. But Paul turns and says, not only are you God's field, you're also God's building. 
So we pastors are actually builders. We're builders, but not as visionary businessmen and designers and architects necessarily ourselves. The vision for what God wants to see, hear me, the vision for what God wants to see in your church is set. He said, he's given us our, our, our marching orders. The vision of God is set. He doesn't need our visionary architectural renderings of, hey God, what if we build this? Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be beautiful? Wouldn't this show off your glory better to the world family? Our work, our work is to grab this gold, the silver, the precious stones that God's given us. These, the word of God, this gospel, our, our prayer, our communion with God, our witness. We grab all of those tools and all of those things and build that God's called us to. We preach the word of God to shape stones to fit into the temple of God. In the ancient world, there was no mortar to fit stones together. Rocks had to be shaped to fit together. And God, through his word, through, praise, through life in his presence, he's shaping us as his stones and stacking us together, tightly fitting, growing us up into the beauty and glory of all that he intends for us to do. Pastors, we are builders and it requires that we build with the things God get, has given us to build, not with things that we think are cool. Paul tells us that if we do that, if we fail to build with what God's given us to build with, it's like building with hay and with stubble. All of them will burn and all of them will be exposed as failing and futile. There's a building at a university near my house in Kansas City, and it's a beautiful apartment edifice. They built it up a few years ago, but now it's unlivable. <laughs> They didn't build it with good materials. They didn't build it rightly. They didn't build it tightly. So now there's mold in it and there's lawsuits against, against the school for, I mean, against the property owners because they've allowed people to live in such awful conditions. It was built poorly with bad materials, family. Is our church rotting and molding and build doing? Or are we building it up with the materials and the good stuff, the solid stuff that will last through the fire? that God has given us to build with family. We need to be constantly evaluating our work. Are we building with materials that, that last through fire? Are we opting for cheap, temporary materials for the sake of optics and the appearances of a healthy church? Family, Paul tells us that we have to be careful what we're building and how we're building. And as we do that, we have to be careful to remember that the church is the temple of God. It's God's building. It's God's building. It is not my building. Redeemer Fellowship is not my building. Redeemer Fellowship does not exist for my glory. Your church does not exist for your glory. It is not your building. It is God's building. And it exists as the temple of the God to bear witness to his presence in the cities that he's called us to live in. We bear witness in our church families, in our bodies, of the holy presence of the living God and invite the nations to find their life in his life, find their life in his life. I'll leave you with this thought. Prepare to take my seat. The story of the scriptures, family, is the relentless pursuit of you to extend his eternal welcome. Since his ruthless pursuit of you, he stopped at nothing to, to bring you to himself. That's why these metaphors matter. It's the reminder of God's work among us and toward us to bring us to himself. Let me see if I can tie all these things together for us as I prepare to close. You see, God would not stop. He would not stop until he won you as his bride. He would not stop until he won you as his bride. He found you rejected, filthy, unworthy of his love, and he cleaned you up. He purified you. He washed you, and he pledged himself to you as 
among all the nations? Would you let the peoples praise you? Let the peoples praise you, O God, and would you let the nations be glad as we bear witness to your presence in the world around us. For we're tired, God, give us hope. Where we have longings that are unmet, would you meet us and satisfy us in your presence? Where we've avoided your presence, would you invite us close yet again and lift the light of your face on us, shine on us, and give us light to reflect your presence in the world? I ask in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Acts 29 U.S. South Central Podcast. For more information about Acts 29, you can go to acts29.com. And for information specific to our work in the South Central U.S., visit acts29ussouthcentral.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter. You can learn about our church planter assessment process, and you can find out about upcoming events. If you or someone you know and love is interested in church planting in Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, or Texas, we'd love to know you're out there, and we'd love to be able to resource you as you continue to process that calling. Again, that website is acts29ussouthcentral.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.